welcome back to another episode of the Filipino American Woman Project, also known as TIFA Project for short. We have another special episode for Filipino American History Month. And if you find this conversation very compelling, remember, we have a phone number. You can either leave us a voice message or a text message. Either or is fine. I don't say call us because there's an unlikely chance that we're not going to pick up because we're millennials and we don't do that. But you can leave us a voice message or a text at 415-484-TFAW, as in the Filipino American woman, or the number is 8329. So once again, you can leave us a voice message or a text at our phone number 415 415- Four eight four eight three two nine. All right. Now let me go ahead and bring on my amazing co-host who actually is out of town right now and we're kind of Yay. winging this as we go. So Nani Dominguez, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Yes, and we are excited to bring on one of our amazing authors. This author was in high demand to really be on our show, and we've heard about her through space. So, Nani, why don't you share with me or our listeners a little briefly on how you heard about Allison here before we officially bring her on, and what compelled you to reach out to her? We have gotten a bunch of referrals and requests for Alta Allison to be on our show. So lots of people are curious about your story. Two of those people being previous guests that we've interviewed on the show, JL, which was episode 16, I believe, and Nicole, who was episode 71, 71 or 72. And then in addition to that, my cousin, Kiani, she was a member of the PEP program that Auntie Allison runs that I've heard so much about and also is a mentee of yours. So yeah, we're very excited to hear your story and also share it with our listeners here. Awesome. Well, thank you, Nani, for giving us a little backstory as to why we have her on. So without further ado, we have Ate, Dr. Allison Tintianco Cabales. Ate, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. What an honor to be on a show with two Pinay hosts. That's fabulous. <laughs> yes. I get to see this often or hear this often. So I just really appreciate both of you. I, I love the sisterhood between the two of you too. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. Nani and myself, our backstory is it actually happened really organically. I started this show or at least the podcast version of it just last summer of 2019. And about six episodes in, Nani reached out to me and she didn't know how she wanted to get involved. She just wanted to. So I was like, why don't you co-host with me? And then we'll figure it out. And then here we are 70 plus episodes later. And it's just been an absolute pleasure having Nani. She's kind of like the person that's really good at paraphrasing what I'm trying to say. And especially this year, I have to give it to Nani for having spent most of the year actually doing her own research and studying more of her culture. So Nani, it's a pleasure to be on this journey with you and continue to interview incredible people such as Atta Allison. Thank you. Yeah, no, the opportunity is mine, I guess. And I'm the grateful one, I feel like, (laughs) to be here. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, at the Allison, you know, as Nani had alluded to, we are just extremely excited to chat with you today. And I just thought I'd start with an icebreaker question, because as you know, 2020 is a very interesting year. So how have you settled into the new normal if you kind of found your, you know, order in chaos? How has that been for you? It's too bad people can't see my face. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, settling in is not the way I would describe my life right now. 
this particular moment, I believe we're in a time of crisis. Mm. I'll just be real with you. Like, I don't feel settled. Mm. Um, I feel the opposite of settled. These months that we've been in quarantine have just magnified what's happening in the world that's actually been happening in the world. And I think we were sick before this pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't necessarily feel like I'm settled. I'm definitely trying to think about the notion of care, which means caring for myself and then caring for our communities, you know, mm-hmm. like in this current time of crisis, which in many ways allows me the opportunity to feel more connected to people. But settled, probably not. That's probably far from what I'm feeling right now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I love um, that you touched on the fact that I think that we have been sick for a while and we're just all, um, it's kind of like the cover is coming off now and we're mm-hmm. seeing what that looks like where before we were able to mask it with, you know, whatever we were running around doing and now we're being forced to hold still in place and really confront those ugly monsters that are behind that cover. So yeah, I appreciate the transparency. I know that I think, People are getting kind of complacent now in quarantine and starting to loosen up a little bit on the social distancing or Mm -hmm. quarantine in general. And, you know, I also understand that kind of impatience or whatever you want to call it, but we're still very much in an unsettling time right now. Yeah, I really like the word unsettle. I think that's a very honest and real way to describe right now. I feel like I should have rephrased the question. Maybe I should have said, how are you holding up? (laughs) You know, (laughs) and everything. But obviously you are here, you know, to have the conversation with us today. So, and I think that I have found that in this time, people are speaking up more than ever. And I'm really happy for that. And I'm happy that our podcast is kind of during a time where people want to be more vocal and want to share their story and everything. Speaking of which, I was watching a video that where you were talking at TFCU here, TFCU Talk San Diego, Jose, and you were talking about ethnic studies. And the key thing I got from the video is that it's important to acknowledge our own narrative. And, you know, part of what we do here, Ape, is that it's all about amplifying our stories and amplifying our our narratives and owning it. And in a way, it's upsetting to me that that's where we have to start, where some people have already owned their story and they've already been allowed or entitled to own their story. And for us as, you know, Philippine ex American people, like we have to go back and be like, you need to acknowledge your story. And so let's start with this at the Allison. I'm curious if you, you could start with sharing your story and how that led you to being an advocate for having us, people like us acknowledge their own narratives and their own stories. Well, okay. Thank you for asking about my story. I think oftentimes we don't ask people about their story. Mm. We make a lot of assumptions about people. And Mm. I think especially in school and in education, lots of assumptions were made about me. Mm. And so I think about when you ask me that question is it's kind of emotional because I, I feel like our stories are the one things that belong to us, our experience. Mm. And when those are not acknowledged, then it feels like we are of no value. And so I appreciate the question around story. And so for me, when I think of my story, I mean, I could give you a really pretty picture of how I ended up as a professor. (laughs) 
<laughs> that would not be the truth. That would be so far from the truth. I I'll be real. Be real with us. You know, like shoes are off. Chanelas yeah. are off. Shoes are off. Yeah, shoes are off. Right? <laughs> no, we got wine on the table, figuratively speaking. Like I want the down dirty. I want the truth. <laughs> I'm actually a tequila girl, so uh, we'll see. Okay, no, okay, that okay, works. Okay. Okay. That works. We can do <laughs> the Casamigos okay. shots are on the table. <laughs> okay. San Julio. Yeah, okay. okay. We yeah, just, yeah. Just teasing. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it, putting, putting everything aside and just saying it for real, you know, I really have a love-hate relationship with education. Mm. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is I feel like... I owe it to my teachers. You know, I really do owe it to my teachers. The ones who hated me, you know, like I owe it to them to be able to say that who I am today is because of them. Yeah. And what I mean by that is like, I had most of my teachers hated me. Wow. But I had one teacher who loved me. It took one teacher. And I was at a community college called Ohlone Community College. By the way, we're on Ohlone land. And so I just want to make sure that I acknowledge, you know, like we're on stolen land. Mm. Or I am. I'm on Ohlone land. Yes, I am as well. Okay, nice. So I just want to acknowledge that. I went to Ohlone College um, because I couldn't get into any college. Because when I graduated high school, I barely, I think I I broke a 1.83 average at some point. (laughs) Yeah, nice. I did graduate though. Like I yes, was <laughs> to graduate. I, I took high school, summer school, you know, like I did everything I could to graduate just so I could party with my friends though. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like about getting the degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I, <laughs> I ended up graduating and then I couldn't really get into any college. My mom said I had to go to college. She said, you need to go to college because you need health insurance. Let's be real. <laughs> Mm. you need to go to college to get health insurance and the only way you're going to get your ass some health insurance is if you go to a community college take 12 units mm-hmm. and get on your dad's health insurance mm-hmm. like she was just being real with me and my dad was a janitor at kaiser permanente and that was the best thing that he could give us was the health insurance on his plan. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I went to Ohlone College, took 12 units and like turned it in to my dad and, you know, got health insurance. I happened to land in a class, though, this class called Ethnic Studies, Introduction to Ethnic Studies. Mm-hmm. And I was just taking that class because I was trying to get units and it said transferable. And someone told me at some point that when you go to a community college, you should take courses that are transferable. So I just took mm. that course randomly mm. and I took it with my friends. And so, you know, hanging out with your friends at community college is like extension of high school. Right. So we were just yeah. <laughs> having a good old time. And that's the thing is, is I wasn't really there. I didn't have any intentions, but boy, did my teacher have some intentions. He wanted to make sure that every single person in that class knew about what was happening in the world. Mm -hmm. And so he was talking all kinds of crazy stuff. So this professor, his name was Ramon Quesada. He wanted to make sure that everyone in the class knew what was happening in the world. Mm -hmm. And he would ask us all kinds of questions, you know, about what we understood about our lives. You know, he asked questions about what we experienced and you know, like how we understood the social politic of the world. And the thing was, is he asked this question and, and no one had ever really asked it of me. And he said, you know, have you experienced racism? He was talking mm-hmm. to me and the whole class, right? Mm-hmm. And of course I said, no. 
<clears throat> yeah, mm-hmm. I said no. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is in the yeah, late. You couldn't recognize it. Yeah, I couldn't recognize it. And also in the late '80s, you know, like we were just coming off the Reagan era, and mm-hmm. we were like, you know, we haven't experienced racism. You're supposed to, you know, like work your butt off and you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, and that's how you're supposed to succeed. There was no excuses, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, and I always blamed myself for not doing well in school. I blamed everything on mm-hmm. me, and actually, my everybody blamed it on me. You know. And so I felt like it was my fault. And I think sometimes we impose that on our children now. But so blaming, you know, like there's a lot of blaming on myself. I really felt like I didn't have what it took to do well in school. But this professor seemed to think otherwise. Right. Mm -hmm. So along with telling us that we all he said, you're all wrong. When we said, no, we haven't experienced racism. He said, you're all wrong. (laughs) And basically you have everybody who's a person of color in this class has experienced racism. And I was like. You just don't know it. (laughs) Exactly. They start naming things, you know, like, I mean, down to name calling or people underestimating you. And he started naming things that actually related to my life. And I was like, oh, I guess when people called me those really bad racial nicknames like Bonsai or Ching Chong or all those things. Like that must have been racism. And I, I really didn't recognize it in those ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's no, it's so normalized, right? Super normalized. And it was kind of weird for someone to speak up during that time, it felt like. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is, again, it's a late 80s, you know, and all kinds of stuff were happening. And I basically started to open up. My world started to open up because of this one professor. Mm-hmm. I wrote a paper in that class. I don't know if you, when you saw the TFCU video, I talked about it a little bit, but I'll talk about it here too, is I, I wrote a paper in that class about racism mm-hmm. after they explained what it was. And a week after I turned it in, he said, okay, I need to talk to you. And I was like, oh shit. Because <laughs> anytime any teacher or administrator or anyone of authority said, I needed to talk to you, I knew my shit was in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're like, what I do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm always doing something, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I totally thought I was in trouble. And I, I waited till after class. And, you know, like, I'm shitting my pants the whole class period, right? And then I go up to him at the end and I'm like, okay, what did I do? And he was like, he, I need to give you something. So he pulled out of his bag. He's like, handed me this paper. It was my paper. And on the front of the paper, it had a big A on it. Wow. And I looked at it and I'm like, what's this? <laughs> this is not mine. <laughs> right. Like I was so confused. And he was like, I just want to let you know that you wrote a good paper. Wow. And I was like, whoa, you know, cause I'd never even had a compliment about anything academic before. Mm-hmm. And I said, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, okay, I need to talk to you about your future. And he said, he said a few words to me. He said, you do know that you, you have the potential to succeed. Wow. And I said, what? And he's like, you have the potential to succeed. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard anything like that before. I had never had anyone have that much faith in me. I mean, mm-hmm. I literally thought I was Sangha most of my life, you know, <laughs> like, right. like that I was an airhead that, you know, like... Yeah, it really wasn't going to amount to anything, you know, so to have a professor say you have the potential to succeed was the transformative moment of my entire career. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
I mean, just coming from coming from like being around a lot of your teacher haters, you know, just not believing in you or you're always feeling like you're in trouble to having this one out of nowhere, say, give you an A and even tell you that you wrote something good and said that you have potential must have been just mind blowing for you. You know, it was mind blowing at the moment. But when I think back to it now, it it really is the magic. Like when I think of why I work with teachers every day of my life, mm-hmm. like because I believe they are the X factor. Like yeah. they have they have the potential. I'm sure that both of you had a great teacher that at least one that had some faith in you that allowed you to think about yourself with value. Yeah. yeah. There was something else that you had said in the TFCU Talks YouTube video that my cousin Kiani had sent me. And it was like, you know, you never wanted to go to college. You didn't have big career aspirations. You were like, oh, you know, when your teacher told you you could really be somebody, you were like, oh, no, it's cool. Like, I'm cool with not being somebody. And that really, really resonated with me because I feel like I have felt the same way throughout my life. And I didn't give school maybe enough of a chance as I should have. And, you know, I definitely had teachers here and there that were like, hey, this is really good. Like, you should run with this. And that was always my response. Like, oh, no, it's okay. Because I'm so used to, you know, in Filipino culture, it's not about, I feel like, at least my elders didn't encourage me to chase after my dreams rather than fall in line and do what you're told and follow this path and become a doctor, become a lawyer. And if you're not going to do that, then marry one, you know? Mm. And so that I think experience is something that I look at, you know, you talking about and I'm like, wow, if only I had someone like that in my life at that time, you know, not that it's ever too late, it's never too late to dive into your strengths and figure out how to leverage them to your advantage. But I just, I didn't have a mentor like that, you know? And so I ended up not going to school and what I do now is completely unrelated from what I had any interest in at that time. And it's just interesting to see, you know, to look back on how things played out and just see why they went the way that they did or how differently it could have gone if you just had one person to encourage you in that way. And outside of your family, there's really not a lot of opportunity for that if you don't go to school or if you don't have teachers in your life like that to kind of pay attention to you. So I appreciate that story because I think it's also really relatable coming from a place where like, oh yeah, I see all this madness going on in the world, but like that doesn't apply to me. I haven't experienced that. I'm neither here nor there. When it's like, no, when you sit down and learn about what racism is, what sexism is, et cetera, it's like, oh, I see this everywhere I go, you know? First off, Nani, I just want to say thank you for being vulnerable and sharing your part of the story, you know, like, and I'm just gonna let you know now I'm down for you. (laughs) If you ever need anything, I don't have to be formally your teacher to actually be someone who can be your cheerleader. You're a true ate, yes. (laughs) <laughs> Thank that's why we call you out there from the that. beginning we knew. I will say, I, if anyone ever asked me like what i'm i know i'm good at is i'm a hella good cheerleader yeah i will cheer you on and I, if you ever need any support say hey, you want to go back to school i don't know I'll, I'll help you do that um and even if, if you don't you know like if there's something that i can do to support you in your dreams um let me know i mean that's i feel like that's what i was put on this earth to do and that's why i had the opportunity to have a great teacher 
encourage me so that I can do work like this and also be able to support other people like yourself. Absolutely. I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Yeah, well, you heard it here and it's recorded, so you can't can't take back. <laughs> no, I, I love that out there. Thank you so much. And, and also Nani for sharing your vulnerability as well. You know, when we talk about that one teacher that stood out to us, I never really thought about that. But I was I was really reflecting just now, like who, you know, maybe just a handful of teachers that I felt like were really advocates for me. But I think because of my own cultural upbringing of not asking, like not speaking out of line or not raising your hand, like, you know, kind of staying within the lines, it was always really difficult for me. I felt a sense of shame to actually reach out to my teachers. I remember I had one that I really liked in second grade. And it was kind of one of those things where it's like, she was a a very proactive teacher and always reached out to me and I really appreciated it, but I was always afraid to kind of return the favor and reach out to her. And then I think about in high school, I had this very committed track and field and cross country coach that was just so dedicated to our success. He wouldn't take no for an answer. He really taught me like some fundamental values of discipline and persistence and all of that. And then in college, shout out to Dr. Ray Monzon at San Diego State University. He's half Filipino and Hispanic, I believe, but he was a doctor and he got a doctorate in psychology and he dedicated a lot of his work to putting Filipinos in the bubble, in, you know, in the, in the bubble when you're filling out those, those forms of like demographics and even like helping with stats for you know, giving like Filipinos recognition or stats on like what it's like for them to transition from high school to college, for example, because um, in his study, he found that a lot of Filipinos were like A students in high school, but then straight once again to college, they're like either college dropout or they end up in academic probation or they take forever to finish college. And it's because there's like a shift that happens where I think, you know, from high school, you go from sort of a place of order to college where it's a, you have the sense of freedom for the first time in your life. And it's just a different thing, the balance there. I could be totally butchering the whole study, but the point is that I just think about these key teachers that really resonated with me. And I think he was one of the few that I actually did sort of talk to a lot, but just that whole fear of like, oh, am I allowed to reach out to them. I didn't realize you're allowed to do that with your teachers. And if I were to go back to school, I would be like such an engaged student. Like I'd be raising my hand, sitting in the front row. Like if I were to do it all over again, knowing what I know now, um, it would oh my be gosh. Different. Yeah. yeah, I would be a much better student, but I'll, I had a lot of shame just growing up in the school system. I honestly did. Yeah. And I like to jokingly say that I'm a master's dropout because I got accepted into my <laughs> master's program, but I never went through with it. And I only did that because of just that stereotype that I felt like I needed to live up to that I needed to be academically smart. So when I did get it, I was like, oh, cool, I'm capable of that. And then that's it. I just didn't go to school anymore. In 10 plus years later, here I am, and I'm doing just fine without a master's degree. But, you know, anyway, that's just what I think about when I think about school and those key teachers that really that motivated me, or at least that believed in me and saw me. And I think, you know, even just one professor really makes a difference. I totally agree. I totally agree that it, it takes one professor, it takes one teacher, and it takes one person, you know, to tell you, hey, you know, like you're worthy. Mm-hmm. You are somebody, you know, like I, I think that's really important. And I oftentimes hope that I'm that teacher for people. Yeah. Um, when it gets to tell them every day, you know, like that you're worthy, that you're smart, that you have the potential, that you're loved. Like a lot of my students trip out because like, a week into the semester, here's this professor telling us that she loves us. So it's <laughs> <a lot. laughs> 
and even more so on Zoom, like this year, like, you know, the first day of class, I was like, I don't know if anyone said this to you in, you know, during this week, but I'm going to tell you all I love you. Wow. I saw eyes kind of go, whoa, yeah. <laughs> that's serious. Um, and, but I do believe it. I believe people you know, need to be loved. You know, I believe the teachers need to love their students. I think some people don't believe that. And I'm okay with them not believing that, but I feel like it's important and it makes us effective if we can actually like see our students for their humanness and love their humanness. So, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we talked about your background of not being the perfect student and here you are with a PhD and you're teaching. Tell me about that journey. Like, how did you decide, like, yeah, school wasn't for me. And yet here you are in the school system. Like, how did you decide? And what was that journey like for you to be where you are today? Well, I, I will say that it was that one teacher. So all my teachers hated me except one, right? And I had one teacher who loved me. And he really, you know, changed my life. His name was Ramon Quesada. But then from that point on, I sought out teachers and professors and community leaders who I knew would give me the same kind of love or support. And so mm -hmm. that really was the way I ended up going from Ohlone College and transferring to a place called UC Berkeley. Some people may know that place. Woo, woo. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I mean, imagine that, like this, you know, yeah, the young Pinai who everyone thought was going to fail ended up at a place called Berkeley. Mm. Yeah. And I did not change that much. <laughs> so I was still, <laughs> Good. I think there was, there's a word now for people like us, like ratchet or something like that. But then I was able to say kind of cray little talkbacker, backtalker. Mm -hmm. I talked back mm -hmm. a lot. And I, it's so interesting because I think about that experience. I'm like, gosh, you know, like, luckily I wasn't scared to talk back, you know, like mm. I was definitely, I think when Jen, when you were talking about not approaching the teacher and, you know, not, not wanting to, you know, not wanting to make any trouble, that kind yeah. of way, yeah. right. And we're taught that way. Even my parents, you know, taught me that my mom, especially was very much don't rock the boat, you know, and there's something to that, right? Like, I believe what I learned from my mom was humility. Mm. Um, the danger in that is when I took humility to self-deprecation another level right yeah. and oh, then right. when I would get into spaces like Berkeley I would take that into feeling like I was an imposter yeah so this idea of the imposter syndrome or imposter phenomena that is out there feeling like I was not worthy right so I think it's okay to be humble it's good to be humble you don't want to be bragging about all your shit all the time you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I also feel like humility is one thing but taking it to the point where you feel imposter is dangerous yeah yeah so, so I went through this whole journey. I ended up at UC Berkeley. I felt like I was an imposter, but you know what? I still went for it, right? And I was very loud and active. And at that point in my life, I was angry. I'm still angry, but like I was at that point was the beginning of my anger towards systems that were oppressive. Mm. And so I got really involved in all kinds of things, especially the fight for ethnic studies. And I started that journey when I was at Ohlone in that ethnic studies class that I took fought for ethnic studies at Ohlone and then fought for ethnic studies at UC Berkeley. And wow. so, wow. and that journey never ended. Like I've, I'm still fighting for ethnic studies now. Yeah. It's, it's really my life, you know, like, and I, I went from Berkeley and surprised my family because I ended up being the keynote speaker for graduation. And my family was like, please don't say anything bad about us. 
Um, I think they were just shocked, you know, like that I was up there. And then all of a sudden I was, you know, the speaker and I had done, done well enough in school to graduate from this place called UC Berkeley, which mm-hmm. a lot of people assume is for the smart people. And I gained access I gained access to an education that not too many people get the opportunity to have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I worked a while before I decided to go on to graduate school. I was really encouraged by some graduate students. I had one specifically, Monty Fuse, African-American graduate student in ethnic studies. And he was like, you need to go get a Ph.D., and I didn't honestly did not really know what that meant. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, you know, I guess so. You know, like he's like, you can be a doctor of philosophy in ethnic studies. And I was like, okay. And I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I realized I wanted to do something. I wanted to change the systems of education that were oppressing me and oppressing people mm. like And so I went on to apply to PhD programs, got into the number one education program in the nation, which was at UCLA. And so I went to UCLA to get a PhD in education, the first PNI to finish her PhD in education at UCLA. Okay. Damn. So I'll be humble, but I'm also going to yeah. say that shit was hard. <laughs> yeah. You can do yeah. that. You did that. You did that. Um, yeah. And I didn't really have too many examples on how to do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So right. you were navigating that space on your own. Totally. But I luckily met this person. Her name was Don Mabalon or Don Buhulano Mabalon. Mm-hmm. And she was getting her master's or she was she was working at UCLA and then eventually got her master's from UCLA in Asian American studies. She became my lifeline. Some of you might know about her, but she was phenomenal in everything that she did. And so she ended up getting a master's in Asian American studies. We ended up being roommates, which I totally, you know, brag about because living with Don <laughs> meant we always ate good. Yeah. And we all <laughs> life and we always had a party going on, you know? I love it. Yes. Yeah. So Don Mabalan, she was from Stockton. She was also a community college transfer. And we had so much in common and we wanted to take on the world. So she was literally my roll dog or whatever you want to call it, like my homie for life, my BFF that I met at UCLA. Mm. And, and that's actually I, I owe it to her that, you know, that I was able to get through such a difficult program and such a hard situation being very much alone, you know, in that yeah. process. So I don't know if you all know Dr. Don Buhulana Mabalon, but she was very much instrumental in creating Filipino American History Month. And she was oh. one of the people from Fonz that really made that happen. Mm. Uh, oh, okay. Who, yeah, she was the one who emphasized history, not heritage. This wow. is History Month. This is about our histories, our stories, you know, like, and so that really kind of brings us full circle. If you didn't know, the two of you, if you didn't know, Don Mabalon, um, Dr. Don Buhulana Mabalon passed away in 2018. Um, oh my gosh. No, I did not. She was very young and it was traumatic in my life and the life of many, but mm. she, her contributions are immense. Like, you can't even measure. Immeasurable, yeah. Immeasurable, yeah. yeah. Her contributions were immeasurable. I'm currently working on writing her story, children's book or a middle schooler book on Don's story. 
So that that's hopefully going to come out in the next five years for young people to learn about Dawn and for us to remember her legacy. Wow, that's wow. so beautiful. Like how inspirational that you are taking that on, taking that task on of writing a book about her life to educate people since, you know, she was gone too soon and we didn't get to know her for ourselves. I mean, I'm sure many people did, but for those of us who didn't. Yeah, I, I I don't think of it as work. I think of it as, you know, like in memory of her, you know, like and yeah. Yeah. just giving back to her life that she's given so many. Yeah, I'm so sorry for your loss, too. Thank you. Yeah, I, I um. I appreciate you sharing that story out there. And it's just, it's an honor to know that in talking to you and knowing that you were associated, you know, with someone who created history for us, because Nani and I had recently learned that Filipino American History Month is still pretty young, like it was established, I believe, in 2009. And so from what our understanding from the Fonz uh, website, and so it's so great to know someone who knows, who knew someone <laughs> who was yeah. uh, really a part of that change. Definitely Don was part of that. Also, I should mention Fred Cordova, Dorothy Cordova. Emily Lawson, Joan May Cordova, all those people really were at the forefront of Filipino American History Month. Wow, that's amazing. So as we know, the theme, according to FONS, and if people are wondering what FONS is, FONS is the Filipino American National Historical Society. The website is F-A-N-H-S hyphen or dash national.org. And also include that in the show notes for any of you that want to learn more about Fonz. So this year, the theme for Filipino American History Month is the history of Filipino American activism. So Ate Allison, I wanted to ask you what this month means to you, particularly because it's about it's specifically about activism. Ooh, that's a good question. I didn't I would have never thought to answer what does this month mean to me? First off, I think. Filipinex, Filipino, Filipina American History Month is always about activism. Mm, mm, <laughs> yeah. This particular year, the emphasis is important because it means that we are saying that we have to be active in the world. We have to do what we say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to consider, like, if we're saying that this is a specific focus on activism this year. We also want to think deeply about our legacy of activism. Mm. Like Filipinex, Filipina, Filipinos, we're never silent. Mm. Even though like I think we're always seen as such or Asian Americans are seen as apolitical, I don't think that is correct to identify our community as such. We have mm. been active for a very, very long time and we've been fighting all kinds of things. Um, we would not have ethnic studies if it wasn't for people, including Filipinas, Filipinos, Filipinexes, fighting for ethnic studies since even before the 60s, specifically, though, in relation to ethnic studies, the establishment of ethnic studies at San Francisco State, Filipinexes were involved with PACE, the uh, Filipino American Collegiate Endeavor, that were then involved with the Third World Liberation Front. So I think those moments, you know, like where we were already involved, mm -hmm. I also think of the current moment where we are fighting to be activists. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, like I think at this particular moment, activism is seen as terrorism. Mm. 
particularly yeah, in the at film. least to Duterte, yeah. <laughs> right? So I, I think it's really important to consider when we say that this particular year we're focusing on activism, we're actually focusing on radicalism. We're focusing on saying, hey, you know what? You know, you cannot keep us silent. We are going to be active. Mm-hmm. And even an anti-terror bill, which, you know, like is in many ways its own level of terrorism against activists. Yeah. And we need to think about that. Like people are fighting for liberation and that's seen as terrorism. Yeah. Yeah. Fighting for human rights is not terrorism. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And that's activism, right? And so activism is something that we need to celebrate. People also need to understand that it is dangerous and that danger is necessary. You know, Mm -hmm. like that we actually have to do something. We can't just be sitting around saying this is what we should do. Or to be quite honest, I love that people are posting a lot of things and this generation is doing a lot of great stuff on the web and, and, you know, and all these different apps. But we also need to make sure that we understand that we can't just be symbolic about our activism. Wow. Mm -hmm. We have to embody activism. We we have to understand that it's going to require us to go in and change policy. It's going to require us to go in and change the people in power. It's going to require us to go in and really think about how do we change systems that have been consistently oppressive to people like us? Yeah. Like we have, we to, have to show up. Yeah. We have to show up and we have to make real change. And it's not just about posting stuff. I appreciate a post, a good post, you know, out on, you know, on, on the internet. I love it. I'm like, oh, that's a good post. But I really have to say, we need to grind. Like every single day, I work with people who are grinding in the classroom. Mm. For me, that's activism. Mm-hmm. When you get radical teachers grinding, working their butt off for the students so that they can build spaces where young people and not so young people can become well or can can become whole or can be or have moments of healing to me that's activism mm-hmm. you know like and so although i believe it's important to go out into the streets with a picket sign and say look this is what we believe to me that's activism but activism is also what happens in our classrooms and sometimes mm-hmm. it happens on zoom and a lot of times it happens when we are fighting you know, against policies that have been oppressive, or it means that we have to fight for policies that are not oppressive, you know? Like, so I think it's really important to consider what are we going to do? That activism has to go beyond symbolism. We have to do something that is actually going to create change and real change for our communities because our communities are suffering Mm -hmm. and our communities are being attacked and our communities are experiencing state-sanctioned violence, like to yeah. me, like there is no reason for us to sit back and just say, okay, you know, that I'm just going to let this happen to me. We can't. Right. means we need to be active. We need to do mm. something. Yeah. There's the there's word active and activism. Sorry, I'm getting all warm right now. <laughs> oh, no, no, I love, keep going. love it. No, I appreciate the candor because I think that our community sometimes needs to hear this message. You know, I think that we've said this message in so many ways, so many times, but sometimes it takes that kind of tone and that kind of attitude for people to really wake up and be like, oh, you know, so posting memes is, you know, educational and all it's informational mm-hmm. for the community, but also 
plug in in whatever space you're already in. It doesn't have to be activism doesn't have to be an an inconvenient thing that, you know, sucks life out of you. It's like whatever your current space is, whether that's academia or your workplace or whatever, your family, even social circles, apply it, you know, in real life, the stuff that you're posting about, apply it, like do it. Yeah, Yeah. exemplify it. And so I appreciate that kind of that passion that you have. Yeah, for sure. Wow. I mean, I think this is a great way to wake people up or get them fired up, <laughs> you know, to take action and and really take advantage of the word active and the word activism. Ada Allison, it's been such an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Again, just like what Nani said, I appreciate your candor, your openness, your transparency, your heart, your passion in what you do. Just like the very beginning, you know, we called you Ada for a reason. And I think you really showed that to us and to our listeners today. Before we go, any parting advice or words of wisdom that you want to share in theme of the history of Filipino American activism? How much time do I have? <laughs> it's, up to you. it's up to you out the there. You're, we're on your schedule. <laughs> yes. I'm, mess- I'm messing with you because, you know, I got all kinds of stuff to say. I, you know, I, it would be wrong for me to be on a show with two Pinais and not talk about Pinaiism. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I, I appreciate, you know, the focus on my story and all of that, but I, I want to just come in a little bit and say that I appreciate the two of you because what you all are doing and who you're highlighting on these shows and bringing Pinais, you know, to the forefront, that's Pinaiism. Mm. So I say that because it's really important for me to acknowledge the beauty and the work that you're doing. So I'll say Pinaiism because Pinaiism is really important to to identify. Mm-hmm. And I'll state it for you because sometimes people don't know what Pinaiism is. And it's something that it's 25 years old. Pinaiism is a 25 year old concept that I helped create. 25 Which years you ago. coined, right? <laughs> I coined, but I didn't create it on my own. You know, like, so okay, I, okay. I, well, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to play Give like credit that. where credit's due. Yes. <laughs> So I, I will I will share it with you just so that the listeners will know what it is. And I, I won't talk a lot about it, but I'll at least share a little bit because it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be right because we're three Pinais sitting in this call, you know? Yeah, so, that's right. Um, Pinaiism is this radical Pinai sisterhood. Mm. Okay? So that's where it all begins. This radical Pinai sisterhood that connects three things, the global the local and the personal stories of Pinais, right? So the stories Mm -hmm. of Pinais, but our stories are so diverse, right? So our stories are about struggle. They're about survival, about service, about sisterhood and about strength. Mm -hmm. And so Pinaiism is really about uplifting us mentally, physically, politically, and spiritually. And so I believe what you all are doing is Pinaiism. Oh my gosh. to me is really what you all have been doing for how many, I don't know, 80 something episodes already. <laughs> like you've been doing this and you, sh- you need to be complimented for this work. I love you both. Like, I really feel like it's so necessary to just pause and say, thank you. Thank you to both of you. What you're doing is a good thing. And I, I hope you know that it really means a lot that you brought me onto this show. And it means a lot that you're bringing on a lot of Pinais to this show, because basically you all are exemplifying Pinaiism. So thank you. 
Oh my gosh, Nani, we got so we got the, the Allison approval, stamp of approval. I know, um, I know. I have goosebumps. <laughs> Thank you for that. No, we we really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's nice to be recognized, like what the work that we're doing. And and we get a lot and we're absolutely appreciative of it, but we can never get enough of it. You know, every time, I mean, literally today before this conversation, I got a text message, Nani, from one of our uh, listeners just expressing how grateful they are for the show yes, because they are. I responded to it. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. She's going through a hard time right now. And she says this, this uh, show is really helping her. But thank you. You know, we make it our job to help our fellow Panayas feel seen, heard, validated, loved. And it's absolutely so nice when it's reciprocated, when when someone can turn around and say, thank you, you know, for what you're doing. And it's not necessarily like a, you know, egotistical thing. It's like, yeah, like this is another affirmation that we're on the right track and we're doing the right thing for our community. So thank you so much for saying that out there. Before we go, tell people how can they get a hold of you? How can they learn more about you and any other resources that you want to share with our listeners today? So you can reach me by going to uh, Instagram and I'm at Pinayism there. You can also go to my website, which is Pinayism.com. And I'm also working directly with Community Responsive Education or CRE. That website is communityresponsive.org. Um, we're actually coming out with our podcast that's literally going to come out in a couple of weeks. And I hope you all listen in. It's really about wellness, um, about youth wellness and schools. And yes. the podcast is called Drawing from the Well. Wow. Yay. More Panay podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's like my dream for more Panay podcasters. Like I just, I want to have like this community of Panay podcasters where we like all like welcome each other on our shows and, yes, you know, just all these things. Take up but, space. Like, <laughs> I'll be honest though, like this podcast is, you know, in the first episode, it's, I'm not even really on it. I think you hear me just a little bit, but it's a multiracial podcast, educators of oh, color. Nice. And wow. youth um, talking about experiences with schools, um, ethnic studies and wellness. Awesome. Beautiful. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up, y'all. Um, Abe, Allison, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on our show. Thank you again so much for your time and the work that you're doing today. And we're just so grateful to have you here. And we're excited that our lives have intertwined in a way. And I'm pretty sure this won't be the last conversation we'll be having together. Invite me back anytime. I'm down for you all. I love you both. I appreciate you. Awesome. Maybe we love you too. And we will definitely invite you back on the show. <laughs> yes, I love it. And Anani, thank you for co-hosting as always. I appreciate you. Yes, we appreciate you, Auntie Jen. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, and uh, no, thank you so much for saying that. And again, to our listeners, if you have found this episode very compelling and engaging and you want to interact with us, remember, we do have a phone number. You can leave us a voice message or text at 415-484-8329. Or you can, you know, find out where you can find us on our socials on our website, tfaproject.com. That's tfawproject.com. With that said, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll chat with you in the next episode. Tune in next time. Bye.